I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And Stephen has assigned a particular passage to me uh, to preach for this closing session. And he's asked if I would preach on Matthew 24, verse 14, which will be the delight of my heart. And just a little while ago, a couple hours ago, I was walking over to the vault and Stephen was standing there and, of course, being a a host and showing all the various aspects of the vault. And there on the wall was Matthew 24, verse 14. So I actually had my picture made in front of Matthew 24, verse 14, and this is such an important verse for sermon audio. It is such an important verse for every preacher here today. It is an important verse for every believer uh, here today. And I want to begin by reading this passage, but but I have to begin where the context begins. And I want to begin in verse 3. And we know the old saying that a text without a context is a pretext. So we really can't catch the real thunder of verse 14 unless we see it in its larger context. So I want to begin reading in in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 24. And we read, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives... And to sit assumes the the chair of the teacher. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age? And so it's very obvious what they want to know is not something that's going to happen Immediately. But at the end of the age, how will everything be be wrapped up? What will be the consummation of the age? And of course, God in His sovereignty has already foreordained the future. And God has already established how everything will come together climactically at the end of the age. And so Jesus answers, and in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, meaning there will be many opinions and speculations that will try to pull you in different directions. Jesus is saying what he will now say is the truth. This is how the end of the age will come. For many will come, verse 5, in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. They're unavoidable. It's already set in concrete in the eternal decree of Almighty God from before the foundation of of the world, it is irrevocable, it is unalterable. These things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. The age will not come to an end in a time of of peace. 
but it will be of international conflict. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And as you know, as the time of delivery approaches, the birth pains come quicker in their rapidity and more intense and more painful. Verse, verse 9, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations. There will be no place for you to hide anywhere on the globe. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, referring to the end of the age, many will fall away. There will be an apostasy. And they will fall away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Churches will just have a meltdown because of false believers in those churches, and they, there will be this apostasy, and they will fall away and give evidence that they were never truly converted to begin with, and will betray one another, and hate one another, as unbelievers in the church will turn on believers in the church. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise. It's interesting in the Bible, it never talks about many true preachers or many true teachers. When the word many is used, it is always used with false prophets. That there will be more false prophets in the world than there will be true preachers in the world. And the devil will sow his tares in pulpits and at the heads of so-called ministries. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many, and they will be the non-elect. Those who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And I will say unto them in that day, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I never knew you. Verse 12, because lawlessness is increased. There will be anarchy in society and lawlessness. And law enforcement will just evaporate. Most people's love, love for life, love for others, love for the truth, love for God, love for purity, love for the family design. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And now our verse, verse 14. This is the neighborhood in which this verse lives. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. 
It's very obvious and very apparent what the end is. It is the end of the age that immediately precedes the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as Jesus gives this answer, he says the end of the age will be marked in verse 5 by false Christs. In verse 6, wars and unrest. In verse 7, international conflict and famines and and earthquakes. In verse 9, persecution and martyrdom. In verse 10, apostasy. Verse 11, false prophets. And verse 12, lawlessness and coldness. This is what is looming on the horizon. This is what is awaiting us. This is this is what's the gathering storm that will be unleashed in the last days. But despite all of this turmoil, there are two positives. In verse 13 and in verse 14. In verse 13 is the perseverance of the saints. That the elect of God, as though they are in Noah's ark, will be preserved through the, through the flood tide of divine wrath that will be unleashed in the last days. The elect of God will be protected and preserved, and they will endure to the end. It is the mark of the elect that they will persevere. They will not apostatize. They will not fall away as, as, as the others will in verse 10. They will not fall away. They will be kept strong. But verse 14 tells us not only the perseverance of the saints, but there is a parallel positive that God will preserve as well. And there will be the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth and then the end. And so despite all the turmoil that will accompany the end of the age, the gospel will be preached and the ends of the earth will be reached. And so what I want us to do in this final session is, number one, I want to drill down in verse 14. Stephen has taken this text to be a a signature text for sermon audio. It needs to be a signature text for me and for you. And then I want to pull out of verse 14 and I want to survey quickly the entire Bible. And then he's asked me to talk about one passion and I'll do that only if I have time at the end. (laughs) But my, my heart is drawn to the drama of this text. Stephen, you have chosen well, my friend. So, let's let's analyze this text. And what I want us to see in verse 14 is six truths. I want you to note six truths. I'm I'm using six because Joel Beakey had six points. 
in, 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 in his first message, so I want to grow up and be like Joel Beakey. <laughs> so, six things I want you to note about this text. And the first is the priority of preaching. How is it at the end of the age that the gospel of Jesus Christ is being spread to the, to the ends of the earth? There will, there will be many secondary means... Uh, There will be one-on-one witnessing. There will be singing of hymns. There will be reading of the Bible. Uh, There will be reading of Christian books. Uh, There will be small group Bible studies. Uh, There will be family devotions. And these are all what we would call secondary means of grace. Means of grace are like pipes through which the The gospel of Jesus Christ flows and the saving grace of God flows from the throne of grace into the lives and into the hearts of people upon the earth. The means of grace. But there is only one primary means of grace. One massive pipe through which the saving grace of God is flowing from heaven to the earth into the lives of people. And it is stated right here in verse 14, it is the preaching of the Word of God. Now, many today are depreciating the place of preaching. And there are all kinds of pushback. Stop preaching to me. Why, why that's a a Western civilization way of getting the gospel out. That's even a a white way of getting the gospel out, or or whatever. That's American way of spreading the gospel. No. According to the Word of God, there is one primary, one chief, one supreme means by which the gospel will go to the ends of the earth, and it is through the preaching of the Word of God. And so preaching must never be allowed to be replaced with an alternate strategy. It must never be downgraded to secondary status. It must never be subordinated to a peripheral place. It must always be plan B and never demoted to plan B, C, D, or less. It is in the wisdom of Almighty God there is to be the preaching of the Word of God to the end of the age. Now, second, the content of preaching. Because it's not just more preaching that we need. In fact, I could argue we need less preaching from a lot of people. We need more preaching of a certain kind. And the content of preaching must be, according to verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom. The word gospel, euangelion, is a compound word in the original language. The prefix u-e-u means good, like a eulogy is a good word that would be spoken about someone at a funeral. Angelion, you can hear angel, angel in that, meaning messenger, angel, or the message. Euangelion means the good message. When William Tyndale came to translate this for the very first time out of the original language into the English, he translated it as glad tidings. 
And it's not just good news. And it's not just great news. It is the greatest news that will ever come from a preacher's mouth, that will ever enter into your heart and into your mind and into your soul. You will never hear anything any greater for the rest of your life than for you to hear the gospel of the kingdom. Romans 1 verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Paul wanted to go to Rome and put the gospel up in the marketplace of ideas and watch the gospel explode in the capital city of the Roman Empire and blow out of the water any other message, any other ideology. Nothing can hold back the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the strongest, it is the mightiest message that has ever been declared on planet earth. And it is the only hope for this nation. It is the only hope for this world. Democracy cannot work independent of the gospel. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people, if those people are reprobates, that is the worst form of government. I'd rather have a benevolent dictator than mob rule where everyone gets a vote. It cannot work apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel? In two words, Jesus Christ. It is the person and work of Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul taught systematic theology in seminary for, for years. And on the first day of class in systematic theology, he told me that he would always begin the first day of class by asking these men who have quit their jobs, sold their house, packed up their family, moved across the country, ready now to be trained for a lifetime of ministry, he would begin by asking this question, what is the gospel? He told me he was shocked, he was stunned, how even the, the men who have felt called into the ministry could not clearly define what is the gospel. The gospel is rooted and grounded in the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the sum and the substance of the gospel. He is the alpha and the omega of the gospel. The gospel is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is the only Savior of sinners. And so to preach the gospel is to preach Christ. Spurgeon said, if we want more conversions, we must preach more of Christ. If we want more revivals, we must preach more of Christ. He said a sermon without Christ is an awful thing. He said a sermon without Christ is like the sky without the sun. It's like the ocean without waters. It's like the harvest, the fall without a harvest. He, he said a sermon without Christ is like an empty well that mocks the thirsty traveler. A sermon without Christ is like a cloud that never rains. A sermon without Christ is an awful thing. 
Spurgeon said, if you have not Christ to preach, sir, go home until you're ready to preach Christ. This is the gospel that will be preached to the end of the age. That Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And those who come unto him, he will in no wise cast out. Now, it's the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom means that there is a king who reigns over a kingdom, and there are citizens in the kingdom, and that this kingdom is the reign of Christ in the hearts of those who believe in him. This implies that Jesus is Lord, that he is the king, and he rules and reigns over his subjects, and it implies that we were born outside the kingdom, and that we must be born again in order to see the kingdom and to enter the kingdom. And one more thing to draw to your attention in verse 14, please note this gospel there is no other gospel. That's right. Whenever the gospel is mentioned in the New Testament, it is always with a definite article, the, the gospel. It is never mentioned as a gospel, as though it is one of many rows proverbially leading up to the top of the mountain to where God is. Now, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the end of death. Proverbs fourteen twelve. Now, this gospel which speaks to the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. There are many roads to hell. There is only one road to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Peter said, there is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul said, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So that is the content of preaching. Why is the only person who doesn't hear that the one that's, that's his phone? <laughs> Third, I want you to note the dynamic of preaching. It says, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. This verb preach is the main word that's used in the New Testament for the dissemination of the gospel. It is a Greek word, caruso. That means to herald, to lift up the voice, to proclaim, to declare, to announce. It does not mean to share. It doesn't mean to whisper. It doesn't mean to play act. It does not even mean to lecture or to teach. Preaching is a higher gear shift than, than just teaching. A, a, a young man once asked Martin Lloyd-Jones, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And Lloyd-Jones said to the young man, if you have to ask me the difference between teaching and preaching, it is obvious that you have never heard preaching. Because if you've heard preaching, you know the difference between teaching and preaching. 
time. I mean, preaching is a, a powerful proclamation of the truth that's intended to do something to the listener in this first century. This, this, the, the Caruso, it was used of Caesar's heralds. Who, who were in his palace, and when he wants to issue an imperial decree to be taken to the, the perimeters of the Roman Empire, the means of communication was for him to summon his heralds to come into the palace. He would give to them the decree. He would then dis- commission them and dispatch them to go into the highways and byways, to go into the cities and towns and villages, and to go into what would be like the town square and to gather the people around them and then to lift up the voice and say something like this, Hear ye, hear ye this day. Rome has won a great victory. We have annexed another kingdom into the empire. Or, hear ye, hear ye this day. Caesar has a son. There is an heir to the throne. He was not allowed to enter into negotiation with the listeners. He was not allowed to withhold any part of the message. He was not allowed to add any of his opinions to the message or to provide any kind of political commentary to what Caesar has entrusted to him. And as soon as he has fulfilled his duty, he was to report back to Rome and he was to present himself before Caesar. There would be an eyewitness who would accompany him and he would give an account as to his faithfulness to have carried out the task that was given to him. If he withheld any part of the message... It would cost him his life. And we understand now what this word preaching means. It is that God has summoned his heralds and called them into the ministry and they have been dispatched from the courts of heaven. They have been entrusted with the full counsel of God. They are to go into all the earth. They are to lift up their voice And they are to proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ. And they are to call for the verdict. They are to call for the response in the hearts of those who hear the message. And the day is coming when every preacher will be summoned back into the palace of heaven and will stand before the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, and will give an account of themselves regarding their faithfulness or their lack thereof with the full counsel of God that has been entrusted to them. That is why James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. This is the dynamic of preaching. It must come with the force of the power of the Holy Spirit with the intent to persuade and to win men and women to faith in Christ. Now note the scope of preaching. Fourth, the scope. It says that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. 
I mean, we understand what this means. That the entire habited, inhabited earth will come under the proclamation of the Word of God. That regardless of the continent, regardless of the nation, regardless of the culture, regardless of the mindsets, that there is one primary strategy for reaching this world, and that primary strategy is the preaching of the Word of God to the four corners of the earth. There's not one strategy for America, and a different strategy for South America, and then an alternate plan for Africa, and then another plan for uh, Indonesia, or India, or China, or Japan, or Australia. No, there's only one plan, and there's only one message, and it is to go to the whole world, and there is a force about preaching that is intended by God such that the gospel comes with a penetrating power when it is accompanied by the Holy Spirit that goes beyond even the reading of a book. And then he adds, not only in the whole world, he says, to all the nations. And the word nations here, ethnos, means ethnics or ethnic groups. The people of all skin color, people of all ethnic groups within nations, that the scope of preaching is to put its arms around the entire planet and preach to the globe. Fifth, the authority of preaching. Verse 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world, note this, as a testimony, as a witness. This word is found 20 times in the New Testament. Yeah, I'm preaching from the New American Standard, and it's always translated testimony, which is a a legal word of someone in a courtroom who is put on the witness stand and who is called upon to give testimony in front of a jury regarding the truth of what they've seen, what they've heard, what they know to be true. Not their speculations, not their private insights or opinions, not secondary hearsay, but what they know to be true. And as it were, under oath. This is the authority. As we preach under oath, to tell the truth, the whole truth, And nothing but the truth of God. And then six, note the duration of preaching. He says at the end of verse 14, and then the end will come. The end here obviously refers to the end of the age. We know that from the end of verse 3. And we know in verse 30 that the end is when the Son of Man will appear in the sky. 
and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. We know that the end in verse 14 is in verse 42, that day when your Lord is coming. We know in verse 44 that the end of the age is synonymous with the Son of Man is coming. Even to the end of the age, there will be the primacy of preaching. This is God's primary means, and no ministry, no church, no denomination, no seminary is allowed to rewire the Great Commission. What God has established as primary is irrevocable. And no preacher is free to reinvent preaching. He is under obligation to God. This primary means to spread the gospel is for both in the church and in the world. Both in person, and we could add in technology, but that the human voice would go forth as the means by which the message of the gospel of the kingdom would be made known. Martin Luther said that the church is not to be a book house, but a mouth house. It's not to be a place where we gather together and we just read books, or read books to one another. That it is to be a place where you hear a human voice be the medium by which the Word of God is brought to the ears and to the minds of the listener. So that is this text. But what I want to do now is to pull out of this just a little bit, and I want to survey the Bible. Is this unique to just the Mount Olivet Discourse? Is this out of alignment with the rest of the Bible? Is this out of step and out of sync with what else we read in the Bible? Or does this line up perfectly with everything that has preceded this verse in the Old Testament and in the the ministry of Christ and everything that will follow through the apostles? And the answer is... This is just the tip of the iceberg. This is just the the, the one text that is in alignment with the entire rest of the Bible. There are many threads that run through the Bible. Most prominently, the gospel itself. Most prominently, the the kingdom of of God. But there is also this, this thread that runs through the Scripture, which is the primacy of preaching as the predominant means by which the gospel and the kingdom of God is made known to the world. So just think with me. From Genesis to Revelation, what is the primary means by which 
the gospel is made known. Well, let's just start with Genesis. Who's the first gospel preacher in the Bible? The answer is God himself. When God comes to the garden, God proclaimed the gospel and his congregation was the serpent, was Adam and Eve. And God himself announced and proclaimed that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And it was God himself who first lifted up his voice and made the gospel known. And if you recall in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said to God, show me your glory. And so God says, go hide yourself in the rock. And there would be multiple layers between Moses and the glory of God, the outshining, brilliant, spectacular splendor of the person of God as bright shining light would pass before Moses and he had to hide behind a rock. He, he could only see the afterglow of, of God's glory. And, and, and then there was a, a cloud that descended out of heaven, which was also uh, a, a covering for the glory of God, which was inside the cloud. And in the cloud was God himself, and it was God who descended And the Bible says that God preached to Moses. I am the Lord. I am the Lord God. And God exegetes himself. God exposits himself. That's how the Bible begins. With God lifting up his voice. And then when we walk through the Old Testament, it is just a wave of prophets. Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, God, long, God spoke long ago in the prophets. They were God's mouthpiece. Enoch prophesied of the coming judgment. Noah preached for 120 years and was a preacher of righteousness. Moses The book of Deuteronomy is just simply a a series of sermons. And in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 1 verse 5, it says, Moses undertook to expound this law. Moses was the first expositor because there was no scripture previous to that. Moses wrote the first five books in the Bible. No one could have been an expositor until the word of God was written by Moses. Joshua was a preacher. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Elijah. Elisha. Isaiah said, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. And Jeremiah. God said to Jeremiah, I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. And Ezekiel, God said, you shall speak my words. And Hosea begins, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Joel, the word of the Lord came to Joel. Amos, five times in the first chapter, it says, thus says the Lord. Three times in the second chapter, thus says the Lord. 
Obadiah begins, thus says the Lord. Jonah 3 verse 4, Jonah cried out, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Micah begins, hear, O peoples, all of you. Not read, hear. Nahum, thus says the Lord. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi begins, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. The whole Old Testament is the record of preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher. And what do we find when we come to the New Testament? John the Baptist. He was a voice. Not a pen. A voice. Crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Raise up the low places. Bring down the high places. Make straight the way of the Lord. Jesus Christ. You know what his ministry was? He was an itinerant evangelist. He was an itinerant preacher who went from village to village and from town to town preaching the message of the kingdom of God. God had only one son and he made him a preacher. And Jesus spent three years training a small group of men to go out and preach. And when you come to the Great Commission in Luke's Gospel, Jesus charges them to preach repentance to all the nations. You come to the book of Acts. Do you realize one out of every four verses in the book of Acts? Let me say that again. One out of every four verses in the book of Acts is a sermon. The book is mistitled. It's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's the sermons of the Apostles. Everyone says, well, I want to, we want to have a first century church. Great. Then, load it up with strong Bible preaching. Nineteen major discourses in the book of Acts. And then Paul's epistles. For the preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing, foolishness, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. If Paul was a pragmatist, he would have given up on preaching. But he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he continued to preach even in the face of rejection. In fact, he wanted to leave Corinth when he went there, as you recall. And God appeared to him in a vision and says, I have many people in this town, and, and, and what? No one's saved yet. Oh, they're going to be. The elect will come to faith in Christ once they hear the message. And then we come to the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Timothy is in Ephesus it's his first time to be pastoring without Paul being the lead man. 
Timothy is in the challenge of his life. He's in over his head. It is an old established church, an older established church. He has unqualified elders. That's why it says in chapter 3, an elder must be, because he doesn't have this kind of spiritual leader. He has unqualified deacons. That's why it says a deacon must be. He has aggressive women who have overstepped their boundary, and that is why he says, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. In the church at Ephesus, you have aggressive women and passive men. It's the result of the fall. They're not taking care of the widows. They're laying hands on elders too hastily. Uh, the, The rich are having too much influence inside the church. So what's the solution? How's Timothy going to set everything in right order? 1 Timothy 4, verse 13. Until I come. In other words, until I can get there, Timothy, this is job number one. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Timothy, you get in the pulpit, strap yourself in the pulpit, you preach the Word of God, hold the fort until I can get there. It's the primacy and centrality of preaching in the local church. And then what does Paul write at the end end of 2 Timothy? It's his 13th epistle. He's come to his final epistle. He comes to the final chapter of the final epistle. What is his last word to Timothy? Last words should be lasting words, right? It's no time to talk about matters of secondary importance. It is a time for the main thing to be the main thing. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with much patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but gathering to themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will give themselves to myths. But you, fulfill your ministry. And what is that ministry? Preach the Word. The book of Hebrews is one sermon. Hebrews 13, verse 22, calls it a word, singular, of exhortation. Same word is used in Acts chapter 14 for one of Paul's sermons on his first missionary journey. The book of Hebrews is a red-hot evangelistic sermon. How shall we escape if they neglect so great a salvation? If you hear His voice, harden not your hearts, as when they tested the Lord in the wilderness. Even an entire book in the Bible, in the New Testament, is a sermon. You come all the way to the end, to the evangelist, to the book of, well, the general epistles 
I mean, I've already quoted James 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. First uh, Peter talks about it. First John begins. In the beginning, this is, what we, this is what we saw, what we heard, what we felt. We announce to you. That's how the book begins, with a proclamation. And then we come to the book of Revelation. Time doesn't permit me to even walk through the book of Revelation. But it ends with Jesus preaching from heaven. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And my reward is with me to give to every man according to his works. So, what, what is the testimony of Scripture? I think a blind man could see it. From cover to cover, it is the primary means of grace is the preaching of the Word of God. That, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm sold out for sermon audio. I, I just love what this ministry is all about. To get the preaching of the Word of God to the ends of the earth. I, I can't go to the ends of the earth. I, I've tried. <laughs> but through technology, the voice can be heard throughout the whole world. The, the preaching of the Word of God. And we don't have time to survey church history, but let me just tell you this. Every high watermark in church history, the Reformation, Puritan Age, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, the Victorian era, is marked by those seasons and periods of the strongest preachers. And the, the low ebbs of church history, where there is a famine in the land for the hearing of the word of the Lord, Amos 8 verse 11, is when the pulpits are bare. Preaching is not the only ministry. It's just the primary ministry. When it is coupled with prayer. So, the broad sweep of church history is, is, is identified by its preachers. You know that. Wycliffe, Huss, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Owen, Henry, Bunyan, Rutherford, Edwards, Whitfield, Spurgeon, Ryle, Lloyd-Jones, Boyce, Sproul, MacArthur. Those are the high watermarks of church history. Philip Schaff writes at the beginning of volume 7 of the history of the Christian church that every great era of church history 
has been ushered in by a return to the Word of God and to the preaching of the Word of God. That, that should tell us something. We, we are all supportive of the secondary means of grace. Again, preaching is not the only thing. But preaching is the primary thing. We believe in the regulative principle to regulate our worship services. What's at the heart of the worship service? It's the pulpit. And the scripture must regulate the pulpit and the preaching of the word. Now, just to bring this to conclusion, one passion. For whatever reason, God has given me an unusual, extraordinary interest in preaching. I have been impacted by preaching. I agree with the Puritans. If you only had one hour to give to God, which of these two would most profit your soul? For you to spend one hour alone with God with an open Bible. Or for you to come to God's house on God's day and sit under the preaching of the Word of God by a man whom God has called to preach who has been trained in theology and in the original languages, who is gifted by God to teach, and who is filled with the Spirit, and who stands before you and brings the Word of God to you in such a way that your mind is enlightened, your heart is ignited, your will is challenged. Which of those two one hours would most profit your soul. They will both profit your soul. It's not either or, it's both and. But in the scales, which will most profit your soul? The Puritan said to a man, it is to come to the house of the Lord and sit under the preaching of the Word of God. Is it any wonder why our churches are so weak? Because the average Christian sits under such little preaching. We've canceled Wednesday night preaching. We've canceled Sunday night preaching. We have shortened Sunday morning preaching. We have canceled Bible conferences. And we wonder why the church is so anemic. Because there's such little preaching of the Word that comes into the average Christian's life. And it also contributes to the mediocrity of the pulpit. Because most preachers do not preach enough to reach their level of of potential as a preacher. If you were trying to, to, to play the violin in Carnegie Hall... Do you think more practice or less practice would help you get to Carnegie Hall to play a violin? If you were trying to go on the professional golf tour to feed your family, do you think more practice of hitting a golf ball or less practice of hitting a golf ball would help you get to the PGA Tour? 
Well, the answer is very self-apparent. It's the same in preaching. You want to be competent in preaching? You want to reach your potential in preaching? You're going to have to preach a lot. It's going to take you your first 100 to 150 sermons just to even figure yourself out. So one passion ministry is designed to try to help preachers get to the next level of effectiveness in preaching. If you only had one bullet to fire, where would you aim it? I would aim it at the pulpit. Because the pulpit is by the intent of God to be the primary influence upon the church, and the church is to be the primary influence upon the world. So with this domino effect, you would want to shore up the pulpit. Because no church will ever grow beyond its pulpit. A church may not measure up to its pulpit, but it will never grow beyond the pulpit. So just very quickly, I'm glad I'm the last speaker. <laughs> just very quickly, one passion. I, I retired from my pastorate about six years ago just to begin to give myself to this. I, I've been hosting 10 to 12 conferences a year both in the United States and overseas, three-day conferences just to, just to give you the instruction that you need to be more effective in the pulpit. And let me just say this. The day you stop trying to get to the next level of effectiveness in your preaching, I can assure you you're going backwards. No one is standing still. You're either advancing or you're regressing. And so to get to the next level, I, I give eight to ten teaching sessions, one hour each, with four or five one-hour Q&As. You can ask me any question in the world you want to ask me, specifically about preaching. What is preaching? How to prepare a sermon? How to improve your preaching? What are the marks of preaching? Even this very simple topic, what is a sermon? If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. What are you trying to create? And what are you trying to do to the listener? As simple as that is. If you can't answer the question, what is a sermon, you're probably not going to hit the mark. You're just going to replicate what you've heard other people do, which could be good or it could be not good. So we host conferences on expository preaching, and our goal is to have 300 preachers come to a conference, and people get on planes, and they come from 10, 12, 15 states. They come from foreign countries. And so I'm very thankful to be able to be, it's almost like a coach in a locker room, and to fire up the team 
to take the field and to win the game. Second, I've, I, we have just started the Academy for Expository Preaching, which is an online preaching school. I've been videoed giving 27 sessions on what is expository preaching, how to put an expository sermon together, what is the history of preaching, how to improve your preaching, how would you know if you're called to preach. You would send us a video of your sermon, we would critique it, we would tell you how to improve your preaching, we would give you reading assignments, we give you written assignments, and at the end we give you a certificate and I think it's, it, it's so good that even Master's Seminary, where John MacArthur is, gives full credit for those hours because I teach those very same classes at Master's Seminary. Uh, further, I produce a weekly podcast called Expositor Podcast. It's six to eight minutes and just focus on one area of expository preaching It's easy to take in and listen to, but it's just to help get you up to the next rung on the ladder. I produce a magazine called Expositor Magazine. It comes out quarterly. Um, I write a feature article of five to 10,000 words every issue. John MacArthur has an issue in each, uh, has an article in each issue. Men like Sinclair Ferguson, uh, John Piper, Uh, R.C. Sproul from the grave. I mean, people like that contribute their articles. I teach a men's Bible study every Thursday morning to try to model how to walk through a book in the Bible and how to preach it verse by verse. And then I lead church history tours through various places in the world to try to light a fire under people and show them where the Word of God has been preached and to take you on site, and to take you into these churches, and take you to graveyards where they're buried, and to take you to places where great disputes have have taken place, just to try to excite people for the preaching of the Word of God. I, I take people to London, to Cambridge, to Oxford, to Edinburgh, to St. Andrews, to Zurich, to Geneva, to Strasbourg, to Wittenberg, to Boston, to Northampton, to Yale, to Princeton, to Philadelphia, etc., etc. And there's just something about being on site there, and then I lecture every morning and every night on key historical figures right there where they have, have served the Lord. It's been very powerful. In fact, the last tour that I, that I did this past May, even the bus driver was converted and came to faith in Christ. So, I I need to land this plane. The good news is, oh wow, the bad news is, I now see what time it is. So, to preachers here today, I challenge you to preach the Word of God. Not less, but more. Not shorter, but longer. Not shallower, but deeper. Not weaker, but stronger. To study as you've never studied before. To pray as you've never prayed before. And to preach as you've never preached before. If God has called you to preach, for God's sake, preach. Second, 
to church leaders. Those of you here who are elders, those of you depending upon your church government, do not let anything take the place of preaching in your church. Shorten your announcements if you have to. Take out one song if you have to. Start the service ten minutes earlier if you have to. At least start it on time. But do not cut back on the time that is devoted to the preaching of the Word of God in your church. That's on you as a church leader. If you try to shorten the amount of time... In fact, Martin Luther once said, the church should never meet for any activity if the preaching of the Word of God is not central. Well, that would shut down a lot of programs. And then to believers, you need to encourage your pastor. You need to support your preacher to the extent that you can. You need to affirm to the extent that you can. You need to pray for him. If you need to get in another church, then get in another church. Find somebody you can support and believe in. And for those of you young men who are here tonight, search your heart and ask yourself, is God calling you to preach? Is there welling up inside of you an overwhelming desire to proclaim the Word of God? Is there a restlessness in your soul that is brewing for you to give yourself to the ministry of the Word of God? Is there a a strong compulsion to study the Scripture and to make its truth known to others, if so, then seek God in prayer and follow His direction. I will let Charles Haddon Spurgeon have the last word. We want again Luther's, Calvin's, Bunyan's, Whitfield's. Men fit to mark eras whose names breathe terror in our foemen's ears. We have dire need of such men. Whence will they come to us? They are the gifts of Jesus Christ to the church and will come in due time. He has power to give back to the church again a golden age of preachers. And when the good old truth is once more preached by men whose lips are touched as with a live coal from off the altar... This shall be the instrument in the hand of the Spirit for bringing about a great and thorough revival of religion in the land. Now listen to this. Spurgeon says, I do not look for any other means of converting men beyond the simple preaching of the gospel and the opening of men's ears to hear it. The moment the church of God shall despise the pulpit, God will despise that church. It has been through the ministry of preaching that the Lord has always been pleased to revive and bless His churches. This is why I'm all in with Sermon Audio. I don't know of another ministry that is so devoted to try to get out the preaching of the Word of God to the four corners of the earth as this ministry does. 
pray for this ministry. Support this ministry. Encourage the people who work in this ministry. It may be the means by which Matthew 24, 14 comes to pass. As I read those things that will mark the end of the age, I am hearing the rumblings and I'm seeing the lightning and I'm hearing the thunder of these signs of the end of the age. I have no idea when Christ is coming back. But I want to be dressed in readiness for when He does come. And I don't want to be one of those who say, well, He's never going to come back while I'm alive. He may well come back while we are alive. Let us be found preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then the end will come. Father, would you bless the ministry of Sermon Audio? Would you uphold Stephen Lee and the staff and the workers at Sermon Audio? Would you provide for all their needs? Would you set an open door of opportunity in front of them? Would you use this ministry for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth? And we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Come soon. Take us home. But until then, we shall be busy doing your work and spreading your message. In Jesus' name, amen.